listening to Tatiana is Everyone, an Orphan Black podcast. I'm your host, Chris. And I'm Stephanie. And this is not a spoiler-free episode. We are going to be talking about the series in its entirety, which as of this recording is up through the end of season two. And we actually have a guest with us today, Mel or Melanie. Which would you prefer me to? Mel's th- either, either one. Mel's fine. Okay. Mel, who is from the blog Mel's Bells. Would you like to plug your <laughs> blog <laughs> or yeah, anything? Uh, mostly, I'd like to plug the fact that I have a movie that is coming out soon. So that's kind of you unrelated, do? but well, it's uh, it got accepted to the Green Bay Film Festival, so Yay! that'll be that'll be its world premiere. Neat uh, next month. So uh, I will also be releasing a short film that I did online uh, along with that, and uh, then I blog about film and television. With kind of an emphasis on sort of behind-the-scenes experience uh, at Mel's Bells, as well as uh, melsbells.tumblr.com. And that's M-E-H-L-S-B-E-L-L-S, Mel's Bells. Correct. I don't know why you had to go all funky with the spelling. Well, it's because when I initially picked the name, it was just a Twitter handle, and the other spellings were taken. And Fair I thought enough. that with the H, it was kind of like, meh. So it was a little bit <laughs> self-deprecatory. <laughs> I like and it. And I never, I never expected this to actually become a, the handle that I'm known by on the internet. Like, that was never the plan. I would have tried to come up with something better, but it just kind of happened. <laughs> We're talking about the Farming Proletheans in this episode. Also known as Henrik Johansson and his followers. We like to call them the Farming Proletheans. For reasons. Just to differentiate. From Tomas. Yes. Yeah. So this storyline... You know, Helena is our clone that's embedded in a really deeply religious storyline. And I gotta say, religion has not gotten a good rap on on Orphan Black thus far. Uh, you know, we have Allison who wears her little gold cross and it's insinuated that she is a person of faith and, and maybe goes to church, etc. But what we've seen of religion has been very not good, you know. so <laughs> Very not good. That's... A succinct way to put it, yes. Yes. <laughs> and in a very specific type of religion, right? This very conservative style of, of Christianity. Yes. I was briefly considering before that we should maybe put like a disclaimer on this episode since we're talking about religion, but then it occurred to me, but we're talking about the stuff in the show, which already, you know, if you're going to be offended by the talk about the extremist religions, you're probably not watching Orphan Black anyway. I think that's fair. Though it did just pop in my head. This is totally not related to what we're talking about today, but we did have Vic in season two trying to practice Buddhism. That is true. That's true. So I did want to mention that. Yeah. I like that touch, actually. With Vic? Yeah. Yes. I like that a lot. But, um, well, I think it's interesting that you say Christianity. I think specifically it actually really... It addresses religion really broadly, kind of cultically, and you do have some some Catholic sort of references with Tomas, kind of with the clerical collar, kind of loosely, and... Uh, and the self-flagellation. Yeah, which is a really specific kind of sect of Catholicism, but I, I feel like the farming Proletheans have really distinctive fundamentalist Mormon earmarks. Right. Which is really interesting. It, it, it almost feels like a, a big love spinoff where you, not where you kind of go to the compound and by, by like season three, 
I was tired of all the time that Big Love was spending at the compound. Like, it was not interesting anymore, but this almost feels like an actual interesting spinoff of that. Yeah, you've got definitely the reference to Mormonism with the plurality of the wives that Henrik has, but I think they might also be referencing Fred Phelps with the big white cowboy hat. While he didn't always wear that, he was frequently pictured wearing that that hat, especially at the protests that he would go to with the big signs that said, God hates fags and things like that. So I think there was also a bit of Fred Phelps reference thrown in. And I think that makes sense because you've, you've got this, this, uh, Fred Phelps kind of has the gay thing, even though there's a lot of other issues that the church, that his church hates. And this, this church has this kind of really intensive relationship with, with, I mean, cloning, essentially. And so, yeah, to kind of make it that, that one, hot button issue that it is that it believes that it has the you know definitive answer for and is kind of against so it's really interesting um but i the style of clothing like when when you see kind of the that group of school kids that's kind of being being ushered around and kind of the things that a lot of the women wear it's it's definitely it's it's definitely that that fundamentalist super hyper conservative mormon super hyper conservative like baptist sort of uh vibe the people with their shirts buttoned all the way up to the top yeah yeah why do they do that which is a thing now in actual style which amuses me but i think they do i think even with all the references i think they still kind of keep it they they do keep it broad enough that you're not like oh it's you know they might make a, a Phelps reference, but it's like it's it's broadly cultish, right? Which I'm sure is what they and, were. And going it has for. all the earmarks of a cart. Yeah, and I think that's well done. I think that's well done. Mm-hmm. Ways to signify this is a cult without saying this is a cult, <laughs> and it is so a cult. Like it has it has it has all the earmarks of a cult. It operates like a cult. It's definitively cultish, even while it's got that weird like pastoral vibe with the the farm and the barnyard animals and all that sort of thing. It, it's definitely a cult. Well, to me, that just kind of reinforces it, because, like, they're, they're a self-sustained kind of thing, so, you know. Yeah, a compound. Did you get a sense from what we heard about the Prolethians last season that they were a cult? I wasn't necessarily picturing them in that regard, but this season, for sure, we see a cultish side to the organization. I guess it was hard for me to definitively say last season, just because all we saw was Tomas, really. And we heard about a couple other people. And so, I don't know. I guess it depends on on one's definition of cult. And I don't know that Prolethians as a whole are a cult, but this is definitely a faction of cult Prolethians. Does that make sense? Yes. So, I kind of... Uh, I. I have some just notes about like marks of a cult. And I think that looking back, you can see some of them evidenced in Tomas. But when it's just one individual, it's kind of hard to decipher whether or not they're working within the greater framework or if they're just a little bit crazy. And then when you see the group of them, then it's like, oh, there's a bigger framework at play. That's definitively a cult. Like... They demand this strict adherence to specific norms, and they suppress any deviance. And that's really interesting because they do that, that suppression of deviance goes both with their kind of sociological function, like, 
you know, all of the women look the same and they all, you know, it's like that. But also, if you kind of extrapolate that towards genetic deviance that they're um, against is kind of interesting. Um, they punish any nonconformity. They punish anything, anyone that questions, like, the leadership, which happens to be patriarchal leadership in this case. Then there's a really high kind of degree of tension between them and mainstream culture, um, kind of exemplified here with art, uh, you know, coming and they, they butt heads really, really bluntly, you know, kind of right outside of the compound. But just with culture in general, anytime you see them out, operating in society there's a really obvious kind of tension there i mean it's it's definitively cult-like but there's there's multiple people now as opposed to maybe this one guy who used to be catholic and kind of went a little insane is kind of how you could have read tomas or at least how i think i probably read him at first when i saw him last season right her first first season. Yeah. I was thinking of the conversation about the eggs in episode 201 with the, the you're talking about the tension between the cult members out in society. Mhm. Which is why I always wonder like Sarah, how do you not realize that those guys are not with the neolutionists and are with the proletheans? Because the neo, I don't think she completely understands exactly how twisted and warped the neolutionists are at this point. I think she's still kind of like to her, like okay, well that's crazy, but you know, sure, neolutionists are crazy too. Like, but I mean the the fact that most of the neolutionists she's met at this point are part of dyad, so they're all you know business attire versus the you know cult aesthetic. Well, I don't know. I mean, there was sects, I guess. I mean, because they're a different sect even than Tomas. So, so far we've got two kind of flavors of Polytheans. Maybe she thought they were different flavors of Neolutionists. Right. And I, and I liked how they set it up so that Tomas was this old world version of Prolethianism and they're more the modern version of Prolethianism, <laughs> even though they're not modern at all, really. <laughs> more modern. They're more modern. It's true. Right. It's all comparative. It is it's relative, of course. So Yeah, but I think that I think yeah, Orphan Black is not particularly kind to it, it doesn't actually attack specific religious tenets at all, but it attacks organized religion and the way that organized religion kind of leverages itself on individuals and I uh, and women in particular, actually. So I I I have to admit, I think that aspect of the show is is pretty pretty good. Although obviously, I have a little bit of a, of a bias towards things that do that. See, I always think of it more as being that the show is against extremism. Well, yeah. or unkind to extremism more than specifically religion. You know what I mean? I think that I think that their their statement about organized religion is that it taken to its logical conclusion, organized religion ends up in organized religion, at, at least in the US ends up in extremism, like the Catholics and I mean, all of it, if you have those sects that and, and the the culture wars and trying to trying to assert their dominance in politics and trying to, you know, fight against gay marriage or abortion or, I mean, now we're getting into hot button topics, but I'm just saying like that is how organized religion kind of functions um, as opposed to religion in general. 
There might be a better term than organized religion, big religion. See, I think of it more as just commentary on how religion can really manipulate and abuse particular types of people. In this case, they're talking really specifically about women, I think. But I, I think of it more as just general commentaries, like, look and see how religion is used against women, rather than trying to, like, demonize organized religion or big religion even. I think it's, well, I guess the only distinction is that between how I see it and how you see it is I would say that they are commenting on how organized religion does do that. I think that's that's a, a small distinction, but that's, I guess I would go a half step further than you. But, I mean, opinion. And I think the the whole commentary about how religion can be cruel to women, unkind to women, really came out very prominently in the second season with the far- farming Prolethians. It was there somewhat yep. back in the first season because, you know, that's just a big theme of the show generally. But it was just really hit hard with this storyline at the farming Prolethians. Yeah. And what's really interesting to me is it takes a ca- the second season takes a character who was kind of reviled a little bit, who by most of the characters, and in fact was kind of positioned that way to most of the viewers. She was kind of loathed. Helena, you know, was feared. She's, she's this kind of weird, murderous, problematic character. And they take her and they put her in a position where she is being kind of abused. And there, there are other women who are being abused as well in, in this situation, but kind of our in is Helena. And it makes her the sympathetic character, and it really points out that, you know, no matter no matter who this is happening to, that this is still kind of this vile, terrible thing. And yeah, it's 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 really explicit. I mean, there's explicit themes of rape. There's explicit themes of, um, you know, just overall misogyny. There's it's it's pretty explicit. This is not a happy episode, by the way. We maybe should have led with that. <laughs> I mean, there's women are subjugated, abused. They're, you know, forced into marriage, raped. Their lips are sewn shut. And it's all within this ecosystem in which they are completely powerless. And there are ways in which they try to take power back. And Helena does that. But also there are ways in which they try to regain power by turning against their own fellow women. Like, uh... Uh, the, what's, uh, well, her, the, the mother, Gracie? the mother, the mother. Yeah. Gracie's mother. Yeah. Gracie's mother ends up being really misogynist to her daughter because that's her way of gaining just a little toehold of power in this, in this world that she finds herself in. She's like the head wife, if you will. And yeah. asserting that her power over the other women is how she gets a sense of power. Yep. So even though she is lower on the totem pole than the men, she finds that by putting other women down, she can leverage herself just a little bit. And so she does, she does it violently and just viciously. She's actually outwardly more vicious than her husband is. I was going to say that scene where we see them talking about having sewn Gracie's mouth shut. I thought yeah. it was very, an interesting choice that they had the mother being the one who was clearly that was her idea, and she was the one who thought that, no, she needs to stay in there longer. Yeah, that that was definitely the scene where you're like, oh, man, that is, you are vicious. So, yeah, um, I think that demonstrates the way that, and, and it's a small sample. You know, you have this sort of really small 
group that this story is about. But I think you can extrapolate that towards society at large. In fact, I think you should kind of I think that's how art works. You can kind of extrapolate that to society at large and see how that that does work in, you know, everyday misogyny and everyday patriarchy and everyday sort of humanity. So, yeah, not a happy episode, no. really. <laughs> I actually, I'm saving, I'm saving the, uh, the kind of production notes for last because I thought that that might at least be a slightly more happy thing to end on. <laughs> and then we laugh. Because, yeah, it's dark. <laughs> oh, dear. But yeah, I, I do think they, I mean, you're right that it's an interesting thing that we've got Helena, who was essentially the villain of season one, being mm-hmm. our entry point into this world and being the sympathetic character in it. And they really started doing that in season one, because, you know, she's introduced as this shadowy, terrifying figure. But the more we see of her, the more we see her with Tomas, we realize that he has essentially turned her into this. So that there's like the you know, the religious figure is the one who is turning her into, like, a vessel of evil or whatever you want to say. <laughs> is a weird way of putting it, maybe. Yeah, I, and so they take this character who, in the first season, was this, you know, and yeah, you're right, they slowly start changing her through the first season. But even at the end, you're kind of cheering, right? Most most people, I think, would be. You're meant to be when Sarah just finally kind of puts an end to her. Like, she's this... You understand that she's been forced into it by Tomas, and that's this terrible thing, and she doesn't necessarily have um, strong concepts of what she's done, or right or wrong, and she's she's essentially kind of a child mentally. But you're still kind of happy to, to see her go. And then when she comes back in season two, there's a little bit of like, oh, man, like, we're dealing with her again. And then they take her, and they make her this incredibly fascinating, sympathetic character complicated character this character who then like you're just you're cheering for her to get her revenge on this other on these men who have just damaged her so badly it's a really phenomenal arc to take a character over over just the course of of 20 episodes really and not even that we don't meet her right away yeah it's episode three when she's introduced yeah it's a really really phenomenal kind of roller coaster ride that you're on with with helena and that that scene where she is which I believe was somewhat ad libbed I could correct me if I'm wrong, but that scene where she's got Henrik strapped into the chair mm. and is sitting there smoking the pipe that she's lit there's this fan- that the scene is lit fantastically the scene is perfectly grotesque it's very horror esque there's this element of absurdist humor and this element of like danger and torture. And there's that scene is just a perfect culmination of her arc, of her personality, of kind of what you want seen done to people who have so taken advantage of her. And, um, it's really, really, that's, that's a fantastic piece of work. I agree. And and you're right, it was at least partly ad-libbed, that scene. I also think it was a good choice to use Helena as the clone in this storyline, because I think it helps illuminate how people can come to be involved in these groups, which 
are can be very abusive. Mm. But Helena was just this isolated person, desperate for connection and family. And even after she escapes them and kind of has bad feelings toward them, they lure her back in with this promise of, you know, we can help you have children, we can be your family. And and mm-hmm. I think that was, I think it was effective sort of demonstrating how people might get drawn in. Yeah, that's a great point. Definitely. People who are kind of disadvantaged or lost or seeking or have no family, that that's who ends up getting kind of pulled into these sorts of things. Because when does Gracie show up? She says she's Helena's sister, come to spring her from jail. And Helena's wanting, Helena's wanting Sarah to show up, but it's, she doesn't. It's Gracie instead, you know, promising this potentially a family experience that she wants. And after the sequence in which Helena is expressing to Sarah you know, basically that she's afraid that Sarah's going to abandon her when she doesn't need her anymore. So yeah, they're highlighting that. I think the other, she also, I mean, she works for that reason, but she also works because this storyline, like if you take this kind of world, this compound world, this Prolethean world, it's it stands kind of in sharp contrast to like this world where we see Art and Sarah and Beth operating like this really almost procedural you know, police sort of world. And so if you take, you take the clone who's already kind of established as slightly more science fiction-y, slightly more, she has like some horror tropes to her as a character and you take her and you use her in this. Um, so she is obviously kind of stands apart from the other clones. Like she's like, Cosima would not work in this storyline because the vibe of Cosima is just so radically different. But the, the vibe that they've already established with Helena in season one plays perfectly into this sort of slightly more horror tropey, slightly weirder vibe that the Prolethean compound kind of has. So are you saying that cults are a thing out of horror movies? I'm saying <laughs> I'm saying that I'm saying that scenes where there are gaunt skinny dudes forcibly um inseminating you <laughs> i'm saying yeah i'm saying that i'm saying that weirdly blue lit scenes where there are gaunt skinny white dudes in barns forcefully inseminating um women with like crazy hair and i like that is straight out of a horror film absolutely yeah. yes i mean i'm not arguing like, with very you science on... fiction very horror <laughs> it's great it's really interesting this show this show just plays with tone and it plays with lighting and it plays with style it plays with a lot of different tropes really it plays with entire genres there are there are multiple genres within some episodes it's crazy i know when i think about it sometimes i'm just kind of like how does this show work this is insane right and the idea that you have this super dark storyline with helena and yet there's still this great dark comedy that they are able to include in it it's amazing to kind of think about how it works but it doesn't cheapen the storyline or make it feel like they're making fun of what they're actually portraying yep it the and and part of that is just maslani being able to handle those tones but part of it is also the writing and the the kind of how they how it's shot it's freaking genius this is this is possibly if if gun to my head if i had to pick you know like the top three television shows on air right now this is this is definitely one of them so how did you feel about that whole conclusion where where Helena 
quote unquote inseminates Henrik. I was I felt really torn about it because I laughed. I was laughing hysterically, but at the same time, like, this is this is terrible. This guy's being assaulted. Why am I laughing at this? I feel like a bad person. I I didn't laugh well, I mean, you're laughing at the sort of absurdist character that she's striking, yes. but at the at the same time, like I I it was almost so dark. To watch her character go that dark without just something to take the edge off, I feel like would be really, really difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that kind of takes the edge off this horrible thing. And you want, like, there's an understanding that, okay, raping a dude, essentially, just because he raped women doesn't necessarily make it right. But again, you've got this character who has her moral compass has been totally destroyed. Her concept of of justice is really the the only is kind of this animal instinct that's come out in her. And so that's it wouldn't work with with any if 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 Sarah did that, you could see it happening, especially if Henrik had done you know something to to Kira. Yeah, I mean you could see it happening, but that actually takes the character to a much deeper place, to a much darker place. With Helena, because she has this almost, you know, childlike animalistic sort of drive to her because of everything that's been done, you you I don't want to say forgive or excuse it, but you definitely understand it a lot more. And then that little bit of humor kind of takes the edge off what is really a dark scene when you think about it. And you want it. As an audience, you want there to be some sort of justice, because so often in life there is not justice for people who do things like that. And so the fact that you want that sort of justice, you know, and that it can be delivered through a character where you don't necessarily feel like that, you know, destroys their humanity or destroys them. As a person, I, I think that's, uh, I think that's, that's kind of a, a bit of a, of a writer's loophole that they took advantage of, that they could do that and get away with it. And it was, you know, yeah. I mean, it is kind of. He deserves it. <laughs> right? <laughs> what, what do you want me to say? He, he absolutely it. deserves it. I mean, it is kind of, it's ironically like biblical justice, right? I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's eye for an eye kind of. <laughs> it's eye for an eye type of thing. Well, and the, I mean, the verse in the Bible about if anyone hurts a child, let him, it's better that a millstone be hanged around his neck and he be that cast into the depths of the sea. Helena's a child. And he did it to his own child. Mm-hmm. He did it to his own child, and Gracie had a little more, uh, Gracie is a child, but she's also a little more understanding. You have someone like Helena, and she is, she is just, yeah, she's so obviously childlike and like every like her the way that she eats the powdered donuts and the way that like everything that kind of leads up to that she's obviously so childlike and you know this is someone who who isn't just raping women raping children like you know there's there's a reason that that's kind of that if you go to prison and you're a child rapist like that's that's the lowest of the low and that's essentially what he is yeah, going back to what you were saying about the violence we see from Helena, you know, it, it working with that her rather than with Sarah. I think you have this sense of even though you don't excuse what she did, 
I think there's the sense of, of course, that's how Helena would handle that situation because of the way they set up the character. Like that just is logical for Helena to do from what we've seen of her reactions to things previously. So you're right. Like if Sarah had done that, ooh, that's a deep, dark place. I don't know if Sarah's going to come back from that. But Helena, she's kind of like, yeah, but that's what you do. Like that's that just yeah, makes sense. That <laughs> And, you know, it's the people who did it to her. I mean, that and made her into that type of character that would do that. So, yeah, there is like this sort of sick justice to the whole thing. It's biblical, but it's also very Gilbert and Sullivan. (laughs) Let the punishment fit the crime. Well, there you go. (laughs) I mean, some people would say that, that, you know, you should just abide by Gilbert and Sullivan instead of the Bible, and that might work out better for you. But I'm not saying that. <laughs> we are advocating no belief systems on this podcast. I'm just saying that the argument can be made. <laughs> I feel like this conversation is reflective of Helena's, the tone of Helena's storyline, right? <laughs> yeah. It's dark, but we're making jokes. <laughs> Dark yet fun. I I should have a pipe <laughs> right now and be backlit. Uh-huh. I should just record all episodes with a pipe hanging out of my mouth. I would be harder to understand. <laughs> but <laughs> well, I was telling Stephanie, I feel weird. I've I've done um, drinks at the doll like four times now. I feel weird not having an alcoholic beverage sitting here. You could have drunk. I was, I was, gonna was say. going to have a drink, but I didn't end up having time to mix one. But. I don't know if you listened to any of the episodes or this specific episode, but the I have uh, to listen to some of the type of I not actually this season. I think most of season one. Okay, because like though. the the last I think it's the last episode of season two, right, Stephanie? I was drinking like a huge vodka tonic and you could hear it in the podcast apparently. Because <laughs> there were people who were like, Chris, you were pretty drunk. <laughs> or or it's not amazing. drunk, but it's like, Chris, you were very obviously drinking. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about how this system obviously oppresses and, and subjugates women. But I thought it was interesting how in this particular cult, it was clearly a cult of personality. Like, Henrik was above everybody else. Yes, probably men were above women. But he was treating all of these people as his little pawns. You know, he we see him approach Mark about marrying Gracie. So it seemed like he fathered all the children, but men did have a place in this culture in some regard. Sorry, was that a question? <laughs> it was just a comment, <laughs> and I didn't know yeah. if you had thoughts about. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that that's a, that's a super cultish symbol too, right? You right. have this super charismatic leader who's able to kind of talk circles around people and really get people to follow and, you know, drink the Kool-Aid, as it were. What really fascinates me about cults is they do, like like you were mentioning, how they, they do attract a lot of vulnerable people, people who don't have family, people who are down and out and having a real hard time in their life. That's true. But cults actually also tend to attract a certain type of male, like, you have this strong, charismatic, um, authoritarian dude, and he attracts the, he attracts authoritarian dudes. Mm-hmm. He really does. And it's because, and it's weird because you think they wouldn't want to subjugate themselves to another authoritarian dude, but if they get to reap the benefits that they're seeing, like having, you know, women be subject to them and believing that they are, you know, 
part of a divinity of God and that they, you know, they'll, they'll cede a little bit of control to the head dude, Henrik, who's got all this like Jim Jones-ish, you know, Roland sort of personality. And to, they'll cede a little bit to that because it, it boosts their power over other people. So again, kind of back to the same, like women becoming misogynists because it, puts them on a slight toehold up. Well, there's, there's, yeah, this cult of personality. And then he, he's getting all of these people to follow him because he's promising them a piece of the authoritarian pie, even though he keeps the lion's share. I don't know if I could possibly fit any more metaphors into that sentence. <laughs> um, Try. No, I'm kidding. I was, <laughs> I was reading actually about Warren Jeffs today, who uh-huh. was the head of the fundamentalist church of latter-day saints i think is the name of it it's a very specific sect of mormonism which is about plurality of wives etc etc he's in jail now for giving encouraging members of his his crew to take very very young brides so he's in jail for for sexual assault of a child and um he would punish people within his group by like taking away their their wives and their children and giving them to other people and he's just a horrible horrible human being but the way that sort of men functioned in his group was reminding me a bit of how we see potentially the men functioning in Henrik's group yeah i'm curious if we kind of see more of that in season three i think that we'll see a little bit more but mostly i guess kind of dealing with the mark and gracie Mm storyline which we'll probably be following yeah, I'm curious if we'll see Henrik again. I think we'll see Mark again for sure, but I'm not sure if we'll see more of the farming Prolethians. I guess, I guess, yeah, that's what I was saying is maybe one or two other of those Prolethians that Gracie's still in touch with. I, I agree. I don't know that we'll see Henrik. I mean, specifically. Helena burned the place to the ground, so we're not sure who survived. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Apparently the children did. She, she got the children out, but. Yes. Yes, in a deleted scene. Mm-hmm. Or so. <laughs> or so we're told. <laughs> Which children who escape from places like that, are are seriously just why do i get is seriously the only word that works here <laughs> messed up but that is not nearly strong enough <laughs> we'll bleep you it's fine <laughs> <laughs> are seriously bleeped <laughs> um yeah the, like they escaped great well now what you even if you put them in like they have no functional skills they have no like they're going to be behind in school they have you know, this weird twisted concept of family. I, they, yeah, they have a long, definitely an uphill battle. And a lot of them, it's just going to be reinforced that, you know, daddy was right and they were being persecuted and now they're out in the big bad world and they just don't know how to handle it. And it's, it's, yeah, bleeped. (laughs) So did you want to talk about the production aspect of the storyline since that's your, something that you have a specialty in? Sure. Alright, um, yeah, so one of the interesting aspects, too, of the Farming Prolethians is it actually makes production, so production of this show, it's only 10 episodes, but it's got a fairly high production value, and you also have an actress who is in essentially every scene, sometimes more than once, so the, the act, like, sometimes more than twice, so the, uh, the shooting is the workload for shooting something like this is huge. It's massive. And so this storyline specifically would kind of help ease the, uh, the production schedule for, for the second season. Cause you've got, you've got a, a set that's essentially in the middle of nowhere where there's lots of room for production. There's lots of room for setup there. You, you don't, you don't have what's called a hard out. 
probably. They probably just had this place for days. So they're, they're not, you know, shooting under the gun as, whereas they might have been in some of these other places, office buildings or whatever that you're going to be renting out to shoot some of the dyad stuff specifically. So you've got this, this closed set. You have control of it. You can shoot anytime. There's, you have more control of your variables like lighting and, you know, lighting up, put the lights outside the window and it seems to be evening for as long as you need it to be. You know, as opposed to, again, back to kind of shooting in the diet where you've got these huge windows, like, floor-to-ceiling looking outside. Well, if you want that to be at night, all right, well, now you have a specific kind of window of time you need to shoot in. That You have control of your sound. There's not going to be as much city noise. You know, the only thing you really have to worry about necessarily is planes flying overhead. So you have a lot more control over the set. And it's really easy to, all right, we're shooting scenes A, B, and C over here, and we're just going to send B crew... Go light the set, go do most of the setup, go start blocking, you know, go, go start setting the cameras and everything like that and, and take your time while, while we're shooting over here. So it, it, it would definitely do, and I, I don't think that's why they wrote this per se, although it may have been why they made them farming Prolethians as opposed to like, you know, living in a trailer park Prolethians. Industrial Prolethians. Yeah, <laughs> the steel-working Prolethian. <laughs> it's it's pretty pragmatic. You, it's not a time-sensitive location. It's it's going to be production-wise. It's controlled, and it's something where you can be setting it up and taking your time instead of having a hard in and a hard out where you are moving and you're on a time schedule and you may not get all of your, you know, may not get all of your stuff, all of your coverage that you actually want. So you have a. Um, when you storyboard, you're going to have a list of coverage. We need this from this angle, this angle, this angle, this angle, etc. And you, you shoot. Sometimes the shooting is, you know, you go from wide to close. But sometimes you're like, okay, I really want this angle. We may not have time, so we're going to shoot it last. And if you don't have time, you don't shoot it. Whereas, like, look at that take that we were talking about earlier with, you know, Helena kind of smoking the pipe. It's ad-libbed. It's lit, just, again, lit ridiculously gorgeously. That's something that when you have more time and you have complete control over your set and you've been able to be there all day, kind of setting up and playing around, if you give a DP time, the DP will play around. Like, if you're like, okay, you've let this, you've lit the set, it is 100% fine, but we don't have actors from hair and makeup for another hour. The DP will play around. Like the DP will be like, oh, okay, let's try to make this prettier. Let's literally, let's take 20 minutes and light this plant that's over here in the background. Cause I think that would be cool because why not? Like, so you have more time to get those sorts of shots lit. You have more time to have multiple takes and it, uh, it, it definitely enables, it eases the production and it enables some really fun stuff. I think it also added some variation in the visuals of the season because we had most of it going on in in Toronto, fake Toronto. And it, that is a lot of, tends to be a lot of like a contemporary industrial type buildings, a lot of clean lines. And then you have the outdoor setting of the farm and, and all of that stuff. And it's it allowed for one of my favorite shots of the season where we see Helena running past Art in that wedding dress out into the field and there's kind of little bits <laughs> of snow coming down and just a very different visual image than you get from the stuff going on with like Sarah and Cosima and Allison. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, that was gorgeous. 
really gr- and the look on Art's face just made yeah. it like <laughs> yeah poor Art it is it really is very gorgeous and it's all like all those exterior shots which also um happened a lot with Cal and Sarah and their road trip a lot of those right. exterior shots it's all just natural lighting there's no bounce there's just look this is gorgeous take the widest shot that you could possibly get and uh capture it you know during magic hour so yeah definitely Definitely better than industrial Perlethians. <laughs> Absolutely. The Steelworkers Union Perlethians. <laughs> Season five. <laughs> the thing that we didn't talk about in regards to the farming Perlethians, which I don't know, would be interested in talking about, but they did have this aspect of they were more open to science than we've seen Tomas being. I don't know that there's a lot to say besides that, but. I did think I of think that. that's a little bit of that slightly more old world, slightly more new world. I was going to say. Yeah. yeah. That that did seem to mark to me like this is, you know, we're we're the progressive Prolethians. <laughs> We've entered yeah. the 20th century. <laughs> <laughs> and you have where in the beginning of the season, you know, Henrik is is making sure to call Helena she when Gracie's calling her an it. And you think, well, maybe Henrik won't be as bad as Dema- No. No, he's he's just as bad, probably worse. Which, yeah, I mean, it, you kind of get eased into a slightly false sense of security, and then, oh yeah, no, he's he's possibly he's he's probably worse. Yeah. I mean, child abuser versus child rapist slash impregnate. I mean, I don't know that you can actually really like they're both evil, really evil and horrible. But yeah, it may eh, I might say Henrik is worse. Again, if I if I absolutely had to pick, <laughs> you'd go with Tomas and the self-flagellation. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> I was thinking back to when when that's when we first saw that scene, and Chris was like, "Flagellate yourself harder, Tomas." <laughs> <laughs> no pity. I like it. <laughs> Chris is ruthless when it comes to TV watching. <laughs> so you should really go back and listen to our season two episodes because that's oh, where wait, I heard one of them where you oh, what was it? Yeah, I remember you were really ruthless in one of them. <laughs> I don't Only it one? must have been a season two one. Well, <laughs> you said something just like and it came out of the blue and it was just so matter of fact. Like, oh, yeah, you should just kill yourself. Like something like that. <laughs> I don't remember the exact. But yeah, it was just like I have no memory of this, but I don't disbelieve you. <laughs> Yeah, no, it was there. Yeah, season two was when I started saying, deserved it. <laughs> that, yep. I did hear one of those. Okay. <laughs> so I, I heard all of season one. I must have heard an episode or two of season two. Um, I got I got really caught up in Serial. I finished listening to Serial, and to be honest, most other podcasts fell by the wayside. I understand. So do I. It was very good. Yeah. So listen to Serial while you listen to us. <laughs> and then come back and listen to us. Except this episode. You probably don't need this episode. But yes, also, since we're recommending other things now, apparently, everybody watch Strange Empire. Anybody who's capable of watching Strange Empire, uh, I think, I don't know, maybe this is a ridiculous thing to say, but I think people who like Orphan Black might like Strange Empire. I think that is correct as well. Because I think thematically... Yes. It's not a science fiction show, but it has similar themes. Right. It's it's actually a Western, but yeah, thematically, I feel like it's a kindred spirit to Orphan Black a little bit. I have not seen it, so I have no comment. 
Okay. Well, we'll have to do something <laughs> been- about that, Mel. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. Mel has so much TV she needs to watch. <laughs> I've been obsessively watching uh, Arrow and Elementary, and um, those are the I like and, Elementary. Those are the two that I've uh, just finished catching up to both of those. So I enjoy both of those shows. And when I posted on Twitter asking if anybody had any feedback they'd like to include in our episode about Prolethians, at Megs3 said, Prolethians, ew, Megan shudders. So I asked if that was her official input about Prolethians, and Megan responded, that and I want to kick them all in the man junk. So thank you for that input, Megan. <laughs> we also received a voice message from Janice, not exactly about Prolethians. Why do you look so scared? You want horse baby? Cow baby? Seriously, though, I would love to see Delphine and Cosina have a hot, sciencey date night at Body Worlds. So, see what you can do. Thanks. So, thank you both for sending those in. Let us know your thoughts about the Farming Prolethean storyline in Season 2. We'd love to hear what you thought. You can do that by leaving a comment on the show notes for this episode over at TatianaIsEveryone.com slash 56. You can also send an email to feedback at TatianaIsEveryone.com or send us a voice message by clicking on the Send Voicemail tab on the right-hand side of our website. You can also call us at 972-514-7223 and leave an old-fashioned type voicemail. We are on Twitter at TIE Podcast, and we're also on Facebook. And once again, a huge thanks to Mel for joining us. Thank you for having me. We'll have to have you back sometime and talk about more production, production things. Production <laughs> Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Yeah, if people have any questions about production type stuff, send them to us and maybe Mel can answer them. Yeah, I would, I would do a whole, I mean, if you guys want, I would do a whole podcast just talking about just, just random production questions, so... So yeah, if you have questions, send them to us. And this week, both The Beautiful Lighting and The Bleep were played by Tatiana Maslany. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>